Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. Hey Scott. And in this weekly segment, features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 19th, 2023. So Mike, I'm going to start with a Trellix report. All right. And it is titled, make sure I get the title in front of me correctly. So it's SKUID. I want to say squid because this is the way I, my mind works, but it's the info stealer that speaks Golang. So I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it or not. I'm always really bad with how people label and name things. But this one's kind of a good deep dive into an info stealer. Uh, if people aren't familiar with info stealers, they're just basically, I would say, a lightweight malware that can just collect a bunch of information on your systems, usually targeting passwords, crypto wallets, um, screenshots, uh, really low-level data, uh, usually not tied to intellectual property or, you know, big, you know, company compromises. But this one was interesting. Um, they did uh, a lot of dive into, like, the reverse engineering and the different function calls and things like that. But there are some things that, I, that you know, stood out as um, certain registry keys they look at to determine if it's, you know, in a VM or not. I always like to look at the anti-analysis type of capabilities I always um, put in there. And one really stood out to me. Um, they actually run a few commands, and one of them is to get the registry key for the... Um, it's in the software, uh, local machine software, Microsoft Windows NT current version, software protection platform uh, registry key, and the value name is called backup product key default. And it's basically checking what is the product key for the host. And my guess is, you know, a lot of people don't actually license their windows when they set up sandboxes and things. So that key is probably blank. Um, so one, I didn't know where that key was actually stored. And now I do know, so I can get a copy of the backup for my own systems. So it's good information there, but um, it's also something that it looked like it was a PowerShell run uh, action. It was a get item property value. Um, the way it was structured. So it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, sometimes when you have really stealthy or it's malware written in a specific language, it's harder to possibly identify the detection of. Um, activity like that, when it's trying to dis verify it's on a legitimate machine, might be a good approach. Um, they do use Discord a lot and target a bunch of Discord things too. So you can see this doesn't really target the, I would say, industries is more personal. Um, so that piece stood out. And then, um, the other thing I really liked about this article was they started getting into like the adversary or the person who wrote the malware. Um, they basically trying to uncover the DeathIned account that's associated with a GitHub account. They saw some relationships going to Reddit and then went from Reddit and saw those things that tied them to Tumblr and then went to Carrot D and then went to the Twitter. 
And so they have all this based on wing counts were created. And then that whole analysis there, I thought was really good for an Intel person to see, you know, pivoting from different pieces of information to try to get an identity, or at least an association. So that write up part was actually really cool too. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the, the two biggest pieces was, you know, some unique calls, um, things I learned from that, uh, as well as the kind of analysis of the writer and how that could be associated to potential person, email accounts and things like that. Um, but it was a good, good read. It was really interesting. Yeah. So a great article, um, as I was starting to read through it, started to look at the technical analysis and I keep going down, I'm like, oh, wow, they really dove in to, to every, you know, process call every virtual machine deck. So they did a really good job. One of the things that I think that kind of stood out to me in the beginning is just talking about Golang as a, um, as a, you know, the, the programming language that's being used more in the space, especially centered around malware, I think because of the uh, interoperability of that code language and being able to build binaries, um, mm -hmm. across the board. Um, and then they talked about kind of the complexity of this, but I, you know, I didn't really see anything that it was doing internally that was super complex outside of it be outside of it written in a different uh, programming language, right? So, um, you know, looking for uh, virtual machine checks, how how much RAM they have, process checks, it seems like it's just kind of reutilizing kind of some of the behaviors and techniques that we typically see, right? Um, but you know, just written in a different way. And so uh, I think o overall, I think there's some tools, I think they called it the media tool that was able to do some, um, you know, static and dynamic analysis of the, the, the binaries. But I think the biggest thing to understand is that, look, it's using some of the same techniques and tactics, just it's just packaged up differently, right? I don't know if you, you know, saw the same thing. No, like the one thing I saw that was interesting technique was, you know, they talked about how they wanted to steal things from Discord, but also leverage Discord. And there were a couple, they knew, or the author knew about a couple files and things associated uh, with Discord that were like protections that Discord had added after the fact when people started taking advantage of certain things. Um, and they understood it well enough to basically remove those things, change some registry things, and then rerun Discord so that it wouldn't have those protections in place. Um, mm -hmm. so like there's things like that, I would say are interesting because there's a lot of effort spent on one specific tool. Um, and I think it's cause they try to leverage that as kind of like their, their C2 in a way. So maybe that's why they really dove into that, but they also had other ways to, um, directly connect, um, through standard web calls as well. I saw, so, so it didn't seem like it really had to rely on that, but that was different. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as like what it would check, what it would do, what was the point and the motivation kind of follows a lot of the same behaviors uh, we see for just standard info stealers in general. Right, right. Um, but again, great article. I think there's a lot to glean from the, the TTP side of the house on um, what some of these actors are trying to do. Again, it, you know, it's consistent kind of across the board, um, at least from my understanding of this. I know you have way more expertise in that side of the house, but, um, you know, I, Outside of this being a new threat, you know, my initial kind of understanding is okay, but you know, it's nothing that is, you know, out of the norm for what we typically look at. It's just wrapped differently. So, mm -hmm. um, 
But no, again, great article. I think this is up there with some of the, the different reports that I've read in the past. Um, they did a really good job. Yeah, the quality is great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, let's so move it on. Uh, I have a, a kind of a different conversation, uh, not getting into, you know, talking about stock markets at all, but I thought this is interesting coming from this, uh, this website called the Molly Fool, Fool or fool.com. Um, this is really, and, and typically these articles are centered around, uh, investment, uh, you know, opportunities or, uh, you know, talking about different organizations that people should invest in. And this particular article is centered around CrowdStrike and Fortinet. And the only reason why I kind of wanted to share this today is just about, you know, some of the stats that they were talking about from these two companies. I know CrowdStrike has been a leader in the EDR space uh, for a couple of years now. Fortinet, um, I think they came kind of came out of nowhere in the past couple of years uh, with their kind of sock in the box opportunity. Uh, really selling to kind of the small and the mids of the world um, and really kind of being that kind of all-in-one go-to tool. But some of the things that really stood out to me was the number of customers that each of them have. Uh, I know one of the stats around Fortinet was they have, they claim they have 660,000 customers worldwide. Um, and typically if you're a Fortinet customer, I think they're really selling again that sock in the box. You're going to have your firewall, your EDR, your automation, your SIM, uh, your network, like all of that baked in. Um, and then we, if we talk about kind of single points of failure, uh, and we see a lot of these organizations going with one product or one company for their whole solution. Um, you know, as we start to see these, these type of threats, uh, these type of supply chain, uh, threats that are coming out, you know, the move it thing, um, group for shell. That's really where I started to think about, you know, if one of these companies ends up being, uh, you know, attacked in a certain way that exposes the customer data or, or right. allows these actors to get into these organizations. I mean, that's a, that's a lot to cover down, right? right. Um, especially if you're using all of that one tool, you're basically shut down at this point. And as we know, ripping or replacing tools is very hard to do. Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of leaning on the Fortinet side more than the CrowdStrike side because they're not offering up the full kind of soup to nuts of networking, ER firewall, you know, all this. Um, but anyway, it's just really interesting to see that kind of meteoric rise for Fortinet. I know CrowdStrike's doing a great job uh, in the space today. Um, but, you know, as these companies start to, um, you know, take over the full landscape of these organizations and offer up that sock of the box, and we're seeing all of these companies start to just blend and merge together where, you know, maybe in 10 years we'll have like four cybersecurity companies. Right. But, uh, some of that scares me a little bit. What kind of, I know about, you know, high availability, kind of, you know, spreading the load, um, having some resiliency, having some fallback. Um, and it's harder to do if you're just tied to one particular organization. So I don't know what you kind of glean from this. No. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I'm a fan of both of those companies right um i think crowdstrike's a great company i think fortinet has some great products too um and you know one of the things um from the fortinet side specifically is i feel like they do really well with their stuff because um they have a way to reduce that technical debt as far as onboarding people to understand how to use their products and use their products well 
Um, they have a great front end for a lot of their stuff. It all makes sense. Easy to manage. If you ever manage firewalls, is I think the easiest one and done works every time. Um, yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the move it stuff, right? This is where I get kind of weird when it comes to like the advice like this is like, you know, any big disclosure or, um, you know, situation could, you know, drastically affect a tech company. Um, Absolutely. I don't know. I don't know what the fallout is specifically for move it, but it's a good example because it's in the recent news. And I know Fortinet gets beat up all the time with some big vulnerabilities, you know, about some of the remote access with their VPNs and things like that, that, you know, actors go after, because as you can see, they have a strong customer base um, and they're going to have devices that are near the edge. So they're always going to be kind of exposed to attacks. Um, so they're kind of playing that back and forth continuously. If you pay attention to vulnerability releases, um, but, you know, they seem to be very responsible how they're handling it. They seem to um, hopefully stay engaged with their customers, so it, I don't think it affects them too much. Um, but, you know, if there was some major thing, kind of like the Move It stuff that happened recently, you know, with that many customers, that's a big exposure that could have some um, backlash. So yeah, I can't even imagine what that would look like from a... <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's just interesting. Like, I don't, I've never thought about, you know, the stocks when it comes to, I, I just think tech's always good because I work in the tech space, but you know, I don't have much of a input, but I, I like, like I said, both these companies I think are great companies. So, um, I would support them if that's what I wanted to do and monetarily was the way I wanted to do it. Um, right. try to make some money off it too. But, but yeah, um, yeah, it was interesting to see their names listed that like, you know, one and two there. So that, that was, mm -hmm. I guess a good feel because even when we, I, we used Fortinet in the past and I did have the opportunity to see Fortinet stand up against like devices because we're kind of like a multi-vendor uh, solution for all of, you know, the roles for the devices. So we get to kind of basically do internal bake-offs and decide, you know, it's not worth it trying to manage multiple vendors. Let's stick with one. Um, and Fortinet was kind of the top dog there for us. So um, good for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, cool. Just a different article to kind of talk through today. Um, but uh, we'll move on to the next one. Yeah, so the next one I'm going to, you know, hit up on another uh, info stealer. So Cypherma, I think, is the uh, the uh, site, I guess how you say it. Uh, but it's uh, called the Mystic Stealer Evolving Stealth Malware. Um, and this one was uh, interesting to me because it wasn't really a technical write-up, uh, but they it really highlighted the malware as a service. Um, so, you know, they kind of talk through, there's this malware that's popped up, there's a developer, they're actively engaged. You basically are able to pay to get a C2 server to help you stand it up. Um, you're able to, um, you know, run and create payloads for you to use in your campaigns. They can talk to your C2. Uh, there's all these capabilities for the stealer that it has, or, you know, traditional to other stealers, like we were just talking about. Um, but, uh, they also show like, you know, if this info stealer was launched uh, April 25th this year, um, they already had a, a a release May 6th, and they even had a, a more recent release at May 20th. Um, and so just seeing how active a, a group is that's maintaining basically this software, like you would a software company, um, that on you know the underground market, people are able to leverage and buy and use. Um, and they have really good uh, visuals as far as, you know, 
what it looks like to use the C2 server, how to log into it, the dashboards. Um, I mean, it looks like a fully polished product, but it's all to manage your malware and, you know, uh, stealing information. So I, I liked this because sometimes when you're trying to communicate um, the threat of malware or malware as a service, as far as like how criminal groups can run everything like that, or even just understanding how malware works, you know, some people have this vision of like, there's this rogue code running in a system and not that it's like, just like any other software you run at home. Um, and this kind of breaks those grounds. So I think it's great, very educational, especially if you're able to take some of the stuff to communicate to um, non-technical people of just kind of like, yeah, this is how malware in our decade kind of functions. I mean, you kind of have a mix of everything, but this is a very real thing. And malware as a service and other types of uh, cyber attack services exist out there. We saw that with phishing. Um, you see the denial of service all the time. So, you know, why not this? And I feel like it's kind of like a growing market. It's kind of always be there, but it was uh, really cool to see and how they laid it all out. So that's really all I want to touch on there. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's a great way to kind of view this article. I, um, as I was reading through it, I'm like, man, this two subscription is only 150 bucks a month and three months right. is like 90. So that's fairly cheap for the amount of infrastructure that you get as you look through everything that it kind of gives you the C2, the panel, the C panel, um, you know, all the infrastructure that allows you to actually do the work that you're trying to do, albeit malicious, but you know, it, it seems fairly cheap, right? right? Um, that does open it up to a lot of people. I know the term back in the day, skip kitty or script kitty, right. Or people who didn't really understand how to build a lot of this, this, this opens it up. Right. Um, well, and had a chance to play with this but yeah go ahead i was just gonna say like it's kind of funny you mentioned script kitty and i was thinking about it um you know we see a lot of open source tools used by advanced threats it might be interesting if this market is reliable and works well enough i can see where nascent states based on the cost would totally take on something like this depending on how sensitive the data they're trying to steal or you know just to make sure that they're able to not expose themselves or expose the information they're trying to steal but like you know i can see how that would be a very easy avenue for some advanced threats that don't want to do a, a very aggressive campaign just to achieve some success and whatever it is, you know, they're trying to get achieved. So. Right. And I mean, there's probably a hundred different ways you could obfuscate the access to this, right? Like I, I'm oh, guessing yeah. they don't do checks on personalized emails. Right. And so literally anybody can sign up for this. I mean, I, I'm guessing governments are probably watching some of this infrastructure especially if you know about it and there's these type of articles, but um, being able to action that and attribute that to an in, in individual is probably really hard to do. That's a really good point, right? Like why not reuse a lot of this infrastructure in a moment of time um, and kind of hide behind that work? Now, the one thing I think I saw it in here, um, but it's all fully developed code with no de library dependencies. Mm -hmm. Um, which is cool, but you also think that's also very fingerprintable, right? I mean, you're using already existing libraries to perform a lot of the functions. So that's one thing that I think, uh, malware like this will kind of run into some barriers where, um, you might be able to do really advanced things with your code, but people will know it's what it is, where it came from and, and be able to attribute a lot of that. Um, much easier. But if you're selling it as a service, maybe it's not so important because you're basically writing the code someone else is using. So, yeah, I don't know. 
exactly it, right? Because it doesn't matter if you attribute it back to that infrastructure, you know, it's not yours, right? Right. So um, if it gets taken down, it's on them, really, right? Right. <laughs> Unless they go after you for taking down their infrastructure because you used it in the wrong way. And I don't know if there's terms of service on that either, so... Well, I think they even, they help you set up your own C2. So they talked about some of the requirements there and they'll actually have professional services kind of like, Hey, this is what you need and we'll help you get everything stood up. So I don't even think you need to leverage their C2. You just kind of tie their C2, your C2 into their stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, professional services for malware, right? Like that, that, that's something we'd never hear about, you know, five to 10 years ago. Uh, but I think the the rise of cloud computing, how cheap it is to spin up infrastructure now, makes this a lot do a lot more doable. Because otherwise, I mean, you're you're doing stuff local on your laptop, or you'd have to have data center access, right? Um, it make it very easy to spin up the infrastructure. I just think it's funny that it can cost so little for the attackers. Where's that uh, software as a service for defenders at a low cost to be able to do something similar? You know. That's, that's a great point, man. I mean, because, <laughs> I mean, again, those prices are ridiculous for what they're really offering, uh, especially yeah. in wealth, right? You can sign up with a credit card, and I, I would bet that most cybersecurity companies or organizations today um, are way above that price point. Oh, absolutely. Probably maybe 5% you can buy with a credit card. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So moving on, uh, article from Security Week. Um, there is a expected SEC requirement for cybersecurity expertise at the board level. So again, I'm going a little bit outside the norm on this article, but I thought it was very interesting um, because they're seeing a lack of cybersecurity expertise across potentially the finan financial sector, but really just across public companies. Um, and I think they're trying to... Um, you know, we bridge some of their risk and some of their filings that they're seeing, especially if we're starting talking about some of the crypto companies that have, you know, currently been under uh, magnifying glass, the whole FTX scandal. Um, and that might be just centered around board governance, but, you know, where is the cybersecurity expertise and is there a kind of a standard, right? And so I think with this, you know, hopefully this comes with kind of a, you know, it's a standard of expertise that needs to be at that board level, but across a lot of these public companies. Um, typically, that resides in the CISO level, so the Chief Information Security Officer. Um, but a lot of times, I mean, they, they might be specific to their industry or operations and might not be ideal talking about board level strategy. And typically, they're the ones that are, are marketing back up to the board members. So then the board members make the decisions uh, most times with, you know, their cybersecurity strategy, um, just based on that, that presentation or that CISO's expertise. So having somebody at the board level with cybersecurity expertise and security expertise, IT expertise would absolutely help with kind of the vision and, you know, build out of some of these companies and kind of forward thinking on, on what they do in a day to day. And so with this, the article, it was really interesting. The article said, okay, do we just promote CISOs that are already at the CISO level up to board, uh, the board seats, or is there going to be kind of a net new uh, requirement that goes out to start hiring people outside of just the, the current kind of CISO level? So this could have a profound effect on 
what actually gets done in these organizations. Um, cause like we get a lot of times and you know, uh, Scott having worked, uh, you know, as a, um, director level of managing and, and having to fight for dollars and budget, mm-hmm. I think this could really be a paradigm shift in the importance of cybersecurity across the board, um, in these organizations, right? So it would be a, a topic of conversation at every board meeting. Um, so hopefully this kind of helps with, you know, the, the practitioners and people on the ground saying, look, we need more money for X, Y, Z. Um, now you have kind of a direct channel of communication into that board seat. So, uh, I thought the article was really interesting. Um, I hope this, this moves forward. Um, in my mind, I think this is a really good, uh, you know, move forward in the space, uh, especially centered just around cybersecurity as a whole, but what were your initial thoughts? Yeah. So I, I did like a couple of things. Um, they talked about like, I like their thought process as far as like, how do you get that experience to the board level? Like, you know, we're talking about bringing somebody in potentially kind of leveling up the training. So they're getting more training, um, or possibly promoting the CISO to kind of a more board level seat. Um, and you know, I, in past roles, you know, that was something we had to talk through too, is we wanted to have better cyber understanding because we did feel like um, some of the things and topics we needed to discuss from a strategy perspective uh, would not be as well received unless the board level individuals receiving some of that information understood at least uh, some of the key components of, you know, cyber in general and some of the terminology. So we had to like come up with what would be the most appropriate training. Um, and that was kind of a difficult task. Uh, because, you know, you can't force people to sit through really boring mundane training that's really long. And how, you, how do you make sure to hit all the right parts? And, you know, something I, it's kind of like now analogy to one of the things I see from other experience in my life, um, that is military leadership. Uh, when you look at the really, really senior levels of military leadership, I kind of look at them as like the board, right? They're so far removed, but they're still in charge of the strategy and making big decisions and determining how things are going to happen if they need to happen um, and kind of playing that shell game. And, but these leaders typically, um, the kind of training they get is, yeah, they may have gone through the similar training the people on the ground go through to kind of work their way up there for their career. Got it. But, you know, that might not be everybody. But the one thing they do see a lot of that I think is hugely impactful is all the drilling and exercises especially major ones, they're always present to see. Like, they don't need to know what every bell and whistle does what and where, but they can see how events unfold. And usually people in those positions should be intelligent enough to say, you know, this didn't seem very efficient, or this seems like a problem. If we didn't have this problem, or we had some way to remove this problem, we could do things better. Um, and then you can sit there and say, yes, well, here's our suggested solutions to address the concerns that you've seen by seeing this exercise or this tabletop or whatever it is. I think that's the best way to get that training and the type of engagement because it can make it real. Um, and especially like, imagine if you, this was like your training cycle and you knew there were certain things you think you needed in your organization and you built that into the tabletop to show this is what we can do today. These are the problems and challenges we have with the way we do things today. And then afterwards, after you kind of do the high level reporting or whatever, then you're able to say, these are what we want to do to address these things that someone was able to see and potentially understand better because it's real. 
Um, I think that's a really cool approach to not have to like bring in new people, but potentially educate people that are currently there, the people that are invested because they've been there uh, hopefully longer than just, you know, that was our first year kind of thing. Um, and it, it could kind of be fun. I mean, if they're not interested, they're not interested, but, um, I assume they want the companies to do well. Um, and it's a, a great way where I've seen great leaders function that way. And I think that caters a lot to it. Yeah. So, I, yeah, no, I think anytime, anytime you can kind of, um, in-house train and, and grow from within, it's really important. Um, and you're able to kind of massage where that training goes right and mm -hmm. to help up the, the general organization and you know if like you said if you love what you're doing you love the company it all makes sense um to, right. to promote within and especially you know there's there's a risk in bringing outside you know people especially in this case where you, i don't think they've really defined what that requirement's going to be like what kind of CISO or what kind of board member you need from a cybersecurity perspective is it somebody who's very operational? Is it somebody who's risk focused? Somebody who's policy focused? I think it's got to be a blend of all three. And a lot of times CISOs are, they have a kind of a strong suit, right? It's rare you find that unicorn that has been mm -hmm. operational in the past year or two, but also understands risk and policy and all the other things that go along with it. So. Yeah. I don't know. Just that like a live tabletop, just being able to be a fly on the wall and see something like that. Like, I'm sure at most board levels, if you talked about denial of service, they would get the concept, right? You can give them training on that. Yep. But then you can talk about if you did a tabletop and actually went through, we got a denial of service on this critical service that now prevents us from communicating with our people in the field. They can't do their work and we're hurting the customer in these ways. And the only way to really around this is either weigh it out or maybe try some of these things that are all partially effective. I mean, that kind of exposes why do I even care about the denial of service, not just understanding that, oh, yeah, services can be brought down. Right. Um, and then when you want to have those strategy conversations on, hey, if we want resiliency, maybe we have certain things in the cloud, and that's why we want to go that direction, or we would need to have this product that can do rerouting and scrubbing of data so the denial of service isn't so effective, and it's going to cost this much, and when we engage it, don't engage it, whatever. Um, it makes a lot more sense and it makes it easy for powerful people to make better decisions, you know? So yep. 100%. And I think that's why they need it at that level to your point. Right? Yeah. Them on not necessarily just business risk, but understanding what those things mean. at a, at a high level. Like how they plug in, right? Exactly. Like everyone, everyone can read a lexicon and get definitions of things and then they can kind of in their head, you know, match things up, but making it real, uh, always has added value context. Yep. 100%. Yeah. The last one is kind of a fun one because, you know, we always kind of talk on chat GPT, uh, from time to time and it's a hacker's news article and it, uh, says over 100,000 stolen chat GPT accounts um, showed up basically on the dark web. And, you know, this is interesting because the risk really associated. So, like, you know, obviously I covered a lot of info stealers, um, at least, yeah, two. And from this report, that's kind of how this information was picked up. They said the uh, majority of the info stealer or the majority of the accounts were taken from the raccoon info stealer, followed by Vidar and then Redline. Um, but something you think about in Chad GPT, and I was having a conversation just right before this, um, 
And it's the type of information you can glean from those historic chats. Like there's ways where you can prevent chat GPT from using your data to train and how they hold your data and stuff like that. You can opt out of certain things, but those conversations have more than just potential data associated to possibly intellectual property or whatever, but it also stores your ideas and your thought processes. And, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem and just by understanding the back and forth conversation, it's like listening in, um, eavesdropping on basically development. Uh, so there's a lot, I think, to be learned when we talked about context in the last um, discussion. Context here is king as well. I think it, it sheds more light on um, what are the, some of the next new things trying to be you know, achieved by using chat GPT or what are some of the struggles and hurdles? I mean, like you can really kind of break things up that way at a higher level. Um, but um, when looking at the counts that were actually picked off, um, the majority of them seem to be in India and Pakistan. Um, there's a lot of development work that happens in India. Um, so maybe there's some, some cause for that. Um, and then it kind of breaks it all down. The U S is kind of what fifth or sixth in the list. Um, but it was kind of really interesting, right? You know, a, a threat that we know people steal crypto wallets because there's money. We know people steal passwords, getting access to things and chat GPT, you know, it's a unique data that I don't think everyone knows how to utilize, but if you're in the business of stealing ideas, intellectual property, getting an advantage, ChatGPT is a great place for that, I think. So, um, yeah, it was just really fascinating that it's going to be, I think, a growing problem. We'll have to figure out how to, uh, to kind of secure that or true that up. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and you were saying that a lot of the, the ways that this information was gathered was from Kind of already established malware within those organizations like they weren't targeting chat gbt it just kind of right it would be uh kind of a, a a nice surprise to them is that right yeah i don't know if it was specifically targeted but obviously they're still in passwords from like uh your standard web browsers and things like that which if you save your passwords there sure they'll be there so so yeah or key loggers yeah yeah again it's just a risk with chat gbt i had a uh conversation with someone and you know i've seen all over the board people immediately integrating chat gpt into their to their organization's capabilities and the biggest thing that i think we talked about the past but my biggest red flag is how are you integrating it did you opt out because uh, mm -hmm. as your customers are now utilizing that you know to your point, they could be exfilling their thought processes, their workflows, that that intrinsic knowledge that is tied to the organization that might not be, a, hey, I uploaded this document, but I uploaded everything that's in that document or the thoughts around a new project or some IP, right? So it gets really scary in, in how people utilize this and not understanding that that data is not kind of ephemeral. It's going somewhere unless you do the very explicit so I'd be really curious to understand how once these organizations integrate, like the Microsofts of the world and the, uh, I think, Conva is another one that I saw that integrated um, into ChatGPT and MidJourney to build like images. But, you know, if, if I jump in and say, I need this image for a an event tied to XYZ for this thing, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you can glean a lot of information, right. a little bit of information, right? So... Uh, that's, that's the part that's really scary for me. So, you know, uh, I don't, I don't assume that this is going to be the last thing 
or the last time that ChatGPT is going to be in this discussion and this podcast. Um, and hopefully we start to see organizations think a little bit better about you know, how they approach this. Yeah, and I'm going to be really curious when there's going to be something attributed to a breach of ChatGPT data using someone's account or whatever and what that what was able to be achieved by that because i think it'll surprise a lot of people um how that how that potentially could be used i mean hopefully it don't get there but if when that article comes out or the report comes out um i i will be very interested in those details for sure so yeah i'll definitely dive in and maybe we'll we'll kind of have a, a segment on the podcast talking about yeah all right well i think that wraps up uh the key, you know, five threatening headlines we're going to hit on. Um, so some announcements before we break. Uh, we do, or yeah, we will have June twenty eighth, uh, threat hunting, shifting gears, and query tuning. We're going to be looking at how to look at your or think about your hypothesis and threat hunting, and maybe your approach as well as some of the things you could do on the back end to understand how do you potentially tune what it is you're looking for and look at it in different ways um, to help with that. Um, then we also have our live interactive podcast. This can be July 20th, uh, 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and uh, that'll be a good time. We always uh, have a theme drink to kind of partake on, and we just interact with the people uh, that want to join us on Discord as well as, you know, kind of hit other topics and deep dive into them um let's use a lot of really really good conversation it's a lot of fun um so join us there if you'd like and that's kind of it for announcements so thank you everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast looking forward to syncing back up next week um and with that that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of june 19th 2023 awesome thanks scott happy hunting everybody yep happy hunting everyone Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.